Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode All The Threes 33 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLarghi and I have to tell you that this may be the last Soho Bites for a couple of months as we at the massive Soho Bites organisation turn our attention to our new podcast for a while. That new podcast is Kino Quickies, which you'll know all about if you heard the last episode. But just in case you didn't, Kino Quickies starts in the middle of March and is based on a series of film screenings and Q&As that we're arranging at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey, just near London Bridge Station. The films are all 1930s quota quickies, such as The Ghost Camera, Death at Broadcasting House and the original Sweeney Todd, not the Johnny Depp one, obviously. Tickets are now on sale for the screenings and we'd love to have you come along to support us and to watch these rarely seen films. You can hear the trailer for the season now, as well as find details about all six films and special expert guests and how to book. That's all at kinoquickies.com. Back in 2008, Westminster Council introduced a ban on what it called a blight. A blight, I tell you on the streets of the West End, namely mobile advertising, i.e. adverts that are held by human beings rather than being attached to a wall or bus stop or something. In the years leading up to the ban, these adverts mostly took the form of tired-looking young men standing in the street holding day-glow signs saying golf sale. No idea why there's always a golf sale on. But there was a long history of mobile advertising in the West End and beyond, way before the mysterious golf sale mafia got its claws into the market. Men wearing sandwich boards advertising local businesses were a common sight for many decades and were so familiar that the film we're discussing in this episode is about one such man. The Sandwich Man from 1966 stars the former goon Michael Benteen and has more British stars in it than you could shake a stick at. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking to the novelist Christopher Fowler about The Sandwich Man. And if there ever was a famous, real-life sandwich man, then it was Stanley Green. If you're over a certain age, and if you ever walk down Oxford Street any time between the late 60s and the early 90s, you may well remember Stanley by his nickname, Protein Man. From 1968 until his death in 1993, Stanley Green waged a one-man war against protein, and he would walk up and down carrying a huge placard urging people to eat less meat, fish and bird because, as he saw it, protein leads to passion 
and passion leads to, well, who knows what terrible things could happen. After his death, Protein Man's placard, leaflets and a whole load of other stuff was acquired for the nation by the Museum of London where it is now on display. The person responsible for obtaining this trove of goodies was Dr Cathy Ross, who was a curator at the museum at the time, and in the first half of the show I'll be talking to her about the life and times of this most peculiar campaigner. Yes, they call me Stanley Green It might seem I'm slightly off my crust But less passion from less protein Is a dream I have In preparing for this episode, I asked a few people, people over 40 who live in London that is, if they'd ever heard of Stanley Green. Most of them said no, but when I said... Stanley Green was the protein man, they all instantly knew who I was talking about. Oh yeah, the bloke with the sign at Oxford Circus. It's amazing that this one eccentric is still so well remembered today. He died nearly 30 years ago. And more amazing still is that when he died, obituaries were written about him in several national newspapers and he now has an entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. And all for walking up and down carrying a sign that said, Less passion from less protein. Less fish, meat, bird, cheese, egg, peas, beans, nuts, and, and this is the surprising one, sitting. You could argue that these are not the actions of a well-adjusted man, and he was clearly an obsessive with some very strange ideas, but he was motivated by kindness, as he truly, honestly believed that less protein would lead to more happiness in the world, which was his ultimate aim. One person who has some insight into the inner workings of Stanley Green is Dr Cathy Ross. Cathy is now an honorary research fellow at the Museum of London, but back in 1993, she was the museum's director of collections and learning, and is the person who rescued all of Stanley's placards, leaflets and various writings and archived them for future generations. I usually try to meet guests for Soho Bites in a location connected to the subject under discussion, but Stanley's stomping ground of Oxford Street is a bit too busy and noisy for that, so we bagged ourselves a bench in a chilly Cavendish Square just around the corner and chatted there instead. Cathy, I said, tell me, just who was Stanley Green? Stanley Green had another name and he was Protein Man and he's familiar to Londoners because he used to walk up and down Oxford Street, Regent Street, Leicester Square, day in, day out with a notice, a placard saying less passion from less protein and he was on a mission to spread what he called protein wisdom which was his belief that if you ate too much protein you would get uncontrollable sexual urges, it would be very bad for you, it would lead to the breakdown of families and death and destruction and anarchy all over the world. So he was spreading his philosophy of eat less protein. And how did this come about? Well, nobody quite knows. I asked his brother after his death, you know, why did he fixate on protein? And he didn't know either, but he said he thought it was something that Stanley must have read because he was always reading. And when we were looking through his papers after his death, we did find quite a lot of sort of national health leaflets and little books about diet, but also about 
menstruation and female gynecology and stuff like that. So I think somehow it all got mixed up in his mind. He must have read it somewhere and it all sort of turned into this, this sort of belief and it was a very, very strongly held belief that protein was the root of all the world's evils. And do we know when this started? Uh, well, he seems to have started his campaign of coming up to Oxford Street in the mid-60s and this was when he was in his 50s and it was after his parents died he lived with his parents um, and they died in the mid-60s and after that he you know found a new niche in life which was spreading protein wisdom. (laughs) All of the material he had the placards, the leaflets, these diaries, that's all now housed at the Museum of London, isn't it? That's right. How did that come about? Well, um, when he died, he was living in a council flat in Ealing, and I just got a phone call one day from someone in the council to say, are you interested in this stuff because we're clearing the flat? And they'd asked his brother to come, and his brother had taken some of the family uh, sort of papers, but wasn't interested in what one might call his public life, you know, all the protein stuff. So I went along, and uh, by the time I got there, they'd moved all his papers and everything into a lock-up garage. So, and it was absolutely stuffed full to the brim with paper. <laughs> you know, he was one of those eccentrics who he scribbled away very tiny writing, and he wrote letters. He had about three copies of everything, all filed in strange sort of cardboard boxes. Uh, so he was writing to politicians, to the Archbishop of Canterbury, to the director of the BBC. He, he, he wrote once, you know, American politicians. He was a bit obsessed with life in prisons as well. He thought that in prisons they were giving the prisoners too much protein. Drafts of manuscripts of books. He expanded his protein beliefs into a longer book, which he submitted to the Oxford University Press, and they turned him down. Why did they turn it down? <laughs> well, I did read the manuscript. I think we do have the manuscript actually, and it, it is, uh, you know, scientific theories goes. It's it's not really sort of uh, peer reviewed. Not really peer reviewed. Yeah, and then manuscripts of a novel as well. There was that, and just lots and lots of drafts of his leaflets that he used to sell when he was up in Oxford Street for, you know, a few pence. I should say he had a little print press in his flat so he used to sort of reprint different editions of his little leaflet. Yeah, he went through a lot of updates didn't it? It over did the years? and, and w- because he had the printing press he would sort of change just single words sometimes or sentences or anything topical he would put in a new sentence and then that would be a new edition of his leaflet. It's quite sort of touching the way and that the British Library kept in touch with him and they asked him to send them every copy of his of his updated leaflet. So they, I think, have a full set. I'm going to put a copy of, or a scan of one of his leaflets I found. Oh. I'm going to put it online for the listeners. I think it's about 12 pages long, 16 pages long. And I've managed to get through three pages, and it's a, <laughs> it's a difficult read. Punctuation's terrible. And yes, and lots of words in capital letters. Yeah, random capitalisation <laughs> all over the place. Though I have to say, when we were looking through his letters, um, yeah, lots of people wrote to him as well. And there were quite a few from people who were following Protein Wisdom and had written to him to say how right you were. You know, I've reduced my protein intake and my life is happier. Excellent. So the material that isn't on display publicly, you've seen, including his diaries. Yes. What does that that tell us about anything about him? Or is it just more of the same ramblings? Well, no, it's not rambling. It's observation. I mean, I think it tells you that he was a classic, slightly eccentric person who, you know, the world revolved around him. So they're very, very detailed about what he saw, what he's learnt from, you know, his experience that day. For instance, 
you know, if he, if he found his messages too long and he would talk to people. He had what he called oral messages. So it wasn't like conversations, but he would say things like, you know, protein, eat less protein or, or whatever. And then sometimes there's little notes in his diaries to say, my message was too long for the lunchtime crowd, so I must make my message shorter. As well as the diaries and the leaflets and the book that was rejected, he wrote a novel. He did. Is it called Behind the Veil? What's it, let me see. It is Behind, Behind the, the Veil. Behind the Veil, more yes. than just a tale. I know. Is it a racy <laughs> tome? Or? It's, it's not racy. It's, it's protein wisdom in disguise. Oh, it's more protein wisdom. Oh, definitely. Oh. I mean, it is rather hilarious, actually. I did sort of bring a bring a little extract oh, for you, but but um, it's it basically characters with very Stanleyish names, like Mrs. Posey, who's a bit pretentious, and Mr. Fallaway, who is a bit. I would think he is Mr. Fallaway because it's somebody who had missed his boat in life, but was nevertheless quite content. And then Mrs. Blissfold who had too many sexual urges until she discovers protein wisdom and then she becomes a happier Sounds person. Sounds Dickensian, the names. They are. It's, it's very strange. And it's obviously quite funny to read, though he didn't mean it as, as being funny. But the women, you know, they sit around and sometimes they have big teas, which are lovingly described, how they have little cakes, little, you know, iced cakes and sardines on toast. And then their conversation inevitably turns around to sort of menstruation and ovulation and, and all women like that. that's all they talk about when they're all <laughs> exactly. together having tea so is there any possibility behind the veil will be published at any point um, i think it would only be published as a sort of novelty about protein man i, I think in terms of you know narrative and plot and characters it gets a bit wearing after a few days a bit like you with the leaflets so, yeah yeah i can imagine so his ideas did develop slightly over the years, although he was very fixated on them, because he, he introduces this idea of sitting yes. being a bad thing, and this is a build-up of protein. Yes, I mean, why he didn't put sitting on initially, I, I don't know, but it was definitely an afterthought, because you can see that, you know, it's on the, the placard that it's just added on. It's about exercise, actually, the need to exercise. So if you just sit the protein will build up in your body and you need to do some vigorous exercise. And in his terms, it was always digging. He did have a little bit of a part-time job as a gardener at one point, so digging was, was quite a, an important activity for him. As I say, I don't know why he didn't put this in at the beginning, but, but he then decided that people were getting too indolent and you know they had to get up off their backsides and, and do some exercise. But this exercise should not be of a sexual nature because he, oh, he was quite against sex wasn't he oh definitely at root of all of this it was all about sort of making people lead happier lives and it was about good health but at the root of it for stanley was definitely sexual activity he thought you know he was he was in the 60s and the permissive society was just coming along and he saw around him evidence of people being immoral not sort of doing what they should do and women sort of exceeding what he thought women, women's roles should be it was very much about that. And but it wasn't religious, though. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't not religious, religious based. no, not at all. He was, in fact, if anything, sort of anti religious, actually. And, you know, as I said, he wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I think he was telling him off. He was always scolding these people for religion not being more. Um, anti protein. <laughs> anti protein, <laughs> exactly. Did he have. I know he had. A small family. His yes. parents died in the 60s and then his brother, you've mentioned. Yes. Did he have friends? or? I don't think he had friends. He was one of four boys and I think two of his brothers died before him and, and Richard, who was the one who survived. Apart from him, 
I don't really think he had anybody close, although he did have neighbours. He lived in Ealing and he lived there for decades, as it were, so he must have had neighbours and people who sort of kept an eye on him, I would and have thought. people. And he did, yes. He wasn't a, a complete hermit, I don't think. OK. Because if he was born a few decades later, he'd probably be on the internet, wouldn't he? And he'd meet like-minded people. <laughs> yes, I, if he was able to, he would certainly have gone on, on the internet because he was filmed when he was sort of walking up and down. He was filmed quite often and he always liked the opportunity for spreading protein wisdom. So he would have seen the internet as another way of spreading the word of, of his creed. But having said that, it would have required him to get either a smartphone or a computer and I can't really imagine that because he lived incredibly frugally so how he would have got onto the internet I don't know if he had a local got on, library maybe a local library that is true actually he could have done that and if he'd had somebody to help him I could see protein wisdom becoming a you know worldwide a viral yeah <laughs> QAnon of adopting yes. it how did the authorities react to him well he was arrested on two occasions by the police for probably for obstructing the pavement and again in his diaries you you can see little notes about how he sometimes when he sees a policeman he goes and stands in the gutter so he's not technically on the pavement so there was a bit of a cat and mouse game with the police but I think the police like all the authorities took him sort of with a measure of affection actually because after he'd been there for for a while he did become a site of Oxford Street and people did look on him with great fondness. I think the BBC did interview him sometimes um, or or they certainly filmed him and people always sort of asked his permission and and did things properly and then some of the letters he got were very affectionate letters, you know, he was enrolled in societies, the Brixton Workers Union decided to enrol him as an honorary member and people wrote him letters which are sometimes quite amusing. So I think there was a great well of affection for Protein Man just because he was there day in, day out, and he wasn't eccentric. I get the impression that he did quite like being photographed and filmed he and spoken to. He definitely did, you know, and as I say, you know, intellectually he said, but it's because I'm spreading protein wisdom. But he must have quite enjoyed it, and that was his mission in life. So, he, you know, he got up, he cycled up to the West End before he got a bus pass, and then he got a bus pass and went up on the, on the tube. And people, you know, will have sort of talked to him all the way, so that was, that was his way of life. My thanks to Cathy Ross for meeting me on that cold day last week. I've put links to various bits and pieces about Stanley on the show notes for this episode, including an article that Cathy wrote about him, and you can also see one of his protein wisdom leaflets there. If you manage to get all the way through it, you have my deep respect. Also, and this is truly excellent, I've posted there the extract of Stanley's novel that Cathy brought along with her. It's called Behind the Veil, More Than Just a Tale, and is quite odd. There's only three pages of it, but it's well worth a read. And all of that is, of course, at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. 
The two big selling points of the 1966 comedy The Sandwich Man were its swinging London location and its cast list, as this trailer indicates. Come and join The Sandwich Man on a day out in swinging London. And 14 top-line stars. Here they are from A to Z. Michael Benteen as The Sandwich Man. Oh, I know. You've got your pigeons and I've got my bingo, but... Well, when you've been married, it's... It's not really enough, is it? Dora Bryan as his neighbour. Oh, my God. That's Steptoe's son, Harry H. Corbett. Get wet. A with it photographer, Bernard Gribbins. You'll see Diana Dawes, Ian Hendry, and as a haughty horticulturist, there's Stanley Holloway. At the London Hilton, you'll meet Wilfred Hyde White. And lower down the scale, you'll nose out Michael Medwin. <sighs> and more stars and yet more stars. Ron Moody, Anna Quayle, Terry Thomas. What seems to be the travel officer? Norman Wisdom, that inimitable clown of so many knockout laughter makers as Father O'Pitkin. He's Donald Wolfett. And he, of course, is the Sandwich Man. How do you do? A double-decker delight spiced with the dishiest tidbits ever cooked up for your pleasure. Ah! Funny, crazy, absolutely mad. Drop in and join the fun. And even though they were clearly very proud of the number of big-name stars they'd managed to pack into one film, that isn't even the full list. In addition to the 14 mentioned in that subtle and unassuming trailer, you could have added Warren Mitchell, Susie Kendall, John LeMessurier, David Lodge, Alfie Bass, Earl Cameron, Peter Jones, Aubrey Morris, Frank Finley, Fred Emney, Jeremy Lloyd and Bert Kwok. A young Brian Kant even turns up at the very end, and two old variety stars, Sid and Max Harrison, make a brief appearance, although one of them is dressed as a polar bear and the other as a kangaroo. In this scene, Horace Quilby, that's the sandwich man's name, and his colleague Obadiah, played by John LeMessurier, are signing up a new recruit to the Brotherhood of Sandwich Men. Horace, I would like you to meet our new recruit, Mr George Pocket. He's with Fred's nude sexorama. They are daughters of Philistia, painted and ungodly, but who are we to judge them? However, Mr Pocket, this is Mr Quilby, our honorary secretary, what I've been telling you about. Pleased to meet you, Mr Quilby. How do you? Do you wish to join our Sandwich Man's Brotherhood? Oh, yes, I do indeed. Ah, oh, well, in that case, sir, uh, here is the entry form. Our terms are annual subscription for announcements, uh, plus a further half a crown uh, just to cover the membership card, literature and badge. I regret no checks, not unless you come from a fixed abode. Oh, uh, and one other thing, Mr Pocket. Our motto is a fair day's walk for a fair day's pain. If you'll take the advice of an elderly Sandwich Man, see it all happen. But never get involved. In other words, Brother Pocket, keep ditched And wander not from the paths of righteousness, brother. But if you're thinking that with that number of star names, the Sandwich Man must be a big-budget spectacular, you'd be well wide of the mark. It's basically a series of comedy sketches, each one featuring one or sometimes two of our star names, strung together by this central conceit that all the hilarity we're witnessing is seen through the eyes of our Sandwich Man, Michael Benteen, who spends his days walking around London, observing the various goings-on but not getting involved. That is the central premise, but the film doesn't always follow through on its own logic, because, for example, when Michael Medwin climbs out of a sewer and disgusts everybody in the sandwich bar with his ungodly stench, Michael Benteen's sandwich man is nowhere to be seen. 
There's also a plotline that's supposed to offer some kind of continuity, which is about Horace and his racing pigeon, Esmeralda. At the beginning of the film, we learn that Esmeralda is in a race on her way back from Bordeaux, and Horace gives his neighbour, Mrs De Vere, played by Dora Bryan, the phone numbers of all the places he expects to be at that day, so that she can call him the moment Esmeralda returns. I think this is what Hitchcock called a MacGuffin. In any case, we forget all about the pigeon for most of the film. For a comedy, I think it's fair to say it doesn't really have you rolling in the aisles, but the fact that Horace covers so much ground and goes to so many locations is interesting in itself. For example, the early scenes are shot in Deptford, in a street that no longer exists, so as a snapshot of London at a particular moment in history with the baby boomers at their prime in a city still bearing the scars of the Second World War, it's definitely worth watching. It's also a snapshot of some particular social attitudes that feel a little bit uncomfortable today. There are white actors browned up to play Indian people, for example, and one of the moments of high comedy is when a passenger on a motorbike, a girl in leather trousers, gets these trousers snagged on a nail and they're ripped off as the bike roars off down a Soho street. None of this is offensive, it's just a bit... Really? Is that the actual joke? More offensive than both of these is Norman Wisdom's attempt at an Irish accent, which is woeful, and I say that as somebody who actually loves Norman Wisdom, so it's quite disappointing. The film was co-written by its star Michael Benteen and its director Robert Hartford Davis, whose previous film was Gonks Go Beat, a wacky, zeitgeisty, surreal comedy. You'd think that combination would give this comedy some sparkle, but the episodic sketch-based format just makes it feel flabby and not very funny. My film chat guest for this episode is the novelist Christopher Fowler. He's best known for his long-running series of beautifully London-centric Peculiar Crimes Unit books about the adventures of two ageing detectives, Arthur Bryant and John May. But in a previous incarnation, Chris was deeply embedded in the Soho film industry with the company he started Creative Partnerships, the founding of which he writes about in his 2013 memoir Film Freak. A few weeks ago, I sent Chris the official Soho Bites list of Soho films, and I want to make it clear that I gave him a completely free choice as to what film to choose. There was no coercion of any kind. We met in his lovely flat in King's Cross, and my first question to him had to be, Christopher Fowler, why on earth did you choose The Sandwich Man? It's an odd one because it's, it's very much the odd film out on that list in that it's plotless and it was made for odd reasons that none of the other films were made for. So it stuck out. Um, it's a comedy and I always like British comedies. I liked, it was probably the first film I saw an overview of London in. So I grew up in Greenwich. So for me, coming up west was still a bit of a trek because you had to come up the old Kemp Road. There's there no tube. So. The delightful old Kent Road in those days. Yeah, the delightful old Kent Road. And uh, so it was still a bit of a, a schlep coming into the West End. So I didn't do it that much. And I hadn't seen the sort of the whole of London portrayed in, in a film like that. Of course, since I've seen it, you know, in, in every possible uh, way, particularly in gangster films. Mm. Probably one of the first films on your list to be chosen would have been Longer Friday. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> you are kidding. No, we haven't done it. Oh, no. That's <laughs> so unfair. I can do the whole of Harold Shan's soliloquy, but I won't. No, don't, maybe not this time. <laughs> and it also appears on in your book, which I'm going to hold up now to the imaginary camera, which is called Film Freak, one of your many books, I should say. 
called Film Freak, and you have a section in which you list your top 10 London films. And there's some brilliant films on there. This Happy Breed, Nil My Mouth, Long Good Friday. But there, number 10, The Sandwich Man just sneaks in. That You don't think it's a great film, do you? I'm, I... It's a terrible film. Okay. <laughs> right. It's a terrible film. So first of all, it's an anthology film. Mm. It, it feels like thumbing through a book of short stories mm. that don't have any punchlines. I remember seeing it in the cinema when it came out, so I must have been a kid. And I remember why I went. It was because Norman Wisdom was in it, and I quite liked Norman Wisdom films. And it was in colour, which was always a big deal. And Michael Benteen was quite popular at the time because of It's a Square World. And then if you look down the list, there's so many character actors in it. So many. Wall-to-wall familiar faces. And I think just the combination of all those made me go and see it. And it just felt like I was seeing a bit of London that I didn't know. Lots of bits of London you didn't know. Lots of bits of London (laughs) I didn't or didn't want to know. (laughs) I think that went on the list because it it showed the widest range of London locations, before London locations started being inserted into films to excite international audiences. Yeah. Because that time we were still making domestic films. So it's very much made for a domestic market. None of the slapstick in it lands at no. all. There's not, a, there's not really a funny line in it. But all the British character actors in it, they do what the British character actors that time did so well, is they're acting their socks off. Yeah. Dora Bryan as as the landlady. It's just like some kind of she's performing in Pirates of Penzance or something. Yeah. But it, it, she gets so much out of every single word. Yeah, That's one little enjoyable. scene. Yeah. Yeah. And they all do their own shtick, don't they? They all do the thing that they do. Yeah. Like Donald Wolfett is his does his kind of. Yeah. And Fred Emney turns up as sort of clubbable man. Oh, well, Wilfred Hyde White. Wilfred Hyde White doing the yeah, same thing yeah. and. Terry Thomas doing his, yeah. oh, come on, you, you horrible, hateful shower. Terrible yeah. <laughs> shower. Because you described it in your book as, I'm going to quote it to you. Oh, God. You described it as dismally unfunny, but as a snapshot of London on a sunny day, it's fascinating for all the wrong reasons. Which makes me wonder, it probably wasn't all that fascinating in 1966 just to see a, shots of London. It's fascinating now to see it 50, you know, nearly 60 years on. So what was the appeal at the time? I mean, as a kid, you were normal wisdom and stuff, but did it have an appeal to a wider audience, do you think? A wider audience, probably not, but I think it was probably part half of a double bill for a start. Okay. And it had enough names on the poster to tick all the boxes of people who'd grown up with all those character actors in other films. So you've got Terry Thomas, Wilfred Hyde-White, you know, you've got these, Dora Bryan, you've got these familiar names. And so if you'd seen the sort of crime capers of the 50s, actually, the first thing you'd spot is who's missing, because there's no Peter Sellers, you know, there's, there's uh, no Eric Sykes, or very few women come out of that. That's true, actually. I was thinking that last night. There's, I mean, there's basically Dora Bryan, there's Susie Kendall. Who else? Was, oh, Diana Dawes. Oh, yeah, Diana Dawes. Anna Quayle. All very small parts, but it's all it's all men other than that. No, Liz Fraser, just no, yeah. big mistake. Yeah. As girl in coffee bar. Yeah, I mean, she could have easily pitched up for half a day and done that, couldn't she? Well, also, um, because of looking at it again from afar, mm. so you get this double prism, don't you, of, the, of your, your own present perspective of London overlaid on a distant and peculiar childhood memory. And more recently, I went to... 
to the BFI and saw a staged reading of The Day Off, which was the film that Gorton and Simpson wrote for Tony Hancock as a sequel oh, to The Rebel. Right. It's oh, right. Oh, yes. I it's heard the film this. that changed his life. It's, it's where, the, where everything went wrong. Because so they, they, wrote a, they wrote this movie, The Day Off, and it is very much a sort of companion. It's a funny, a sad companion piece to The Sandwich Man in a way. It's about a bus driver on his day off walking around London. And it's absolutely hilarious. I think I saw it with someone like Michael Sheen. And they had a great cast doing it on stage. So they, they, they gave it to Hancock, and Hancock uh, turned it down, said it was too provincial. Okay. And he went to Disney in Hollywood and made Adventures of Bullwick Griffin, Griffin. He was fired off the set mm. for drinking and came back and then accepted The Punch and Judy Man, which was sort of way more parochial than the one he could have made. Yeah. But he did actually, people don't know this, he did actually go back to Gordon Simpson and say, I'll do it. Oh, really? But um, they had moved on. They said, well, we're doing a new thing called Step Turn Son. And that was, so he had realised he'd, he'd lost it. Wow. And Harry H. Corbett, of course, is in the sandwich one. Yeah, yeah. I think Gordon Simpson, they represented so much that post-war, slightly, not austerity as such, but just a kind of culture of there not being much. You know, you go to a cafe and you... There's a selection of five different things, you know. And Gordon and Simpson represent that time where it was just kind of suet. And I always admired Gordon and Simpson for representing the underclass. I think they try to do that a bit in Sandwich Man because he's meant to be a bit underclass. He's got the dignity and respect of a job which will now be considered to be something which uses wage slave teenage students or something, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, the, the whole, this whole idea of the brotherhood of sandwich men, and there's like this, almost like a secret society that runs parallel to the real world. And that John LeMessurier character says, John LeMessurier plays a kind of, quite a person who's quite helping the brotherhood of sandwich men, and also is a religious zealot. And he has this line where he says, our motto is a fair day's walk for a fair day's pay, which is a pun. And if you take the advice of an elderly sandwich man, see it all happen but never get involved, which is kind of what the film does. You know, he just yeah. does walk around and not... He sees these little kind of vignettes. His role in this brotherhood of sandwich men is to just observe. That's the other thing that probably appealed, was the idea that London is actually a village, uh, or a series of villages, because yeah. he keeps bumping into the same people yeah. over and over again. <laughs> yes, yeah. Abdul in the carpets. And... It doesn't feel racist to have the, the other characters in there. It just feels a bit odd. No, well, I was going to get on to race because the company that you formed in the late 70s, Creative Partnerships, so you were a film marketing yeah. promotions company and you took a decision reasonably early on to not work with films that were sexist, racist, homophobic and yeah. all those kind of things. Would this film, I mean, I know it's slightly earlier than your time, this film, but if this film had come up on your radar, would you have, would you have worked with it? Because the race thing, I imagine a modern audience looking, coming to that film cold would find the first scene quite disturbing. Mm. Because yeah. of that kind of, oh, no, 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 that kind of... Comedy, yeah. Comedy but, Indian. Well, it, no, it wouldn't have been a problem because uh, it was benign caricature was the prevailing attitude of, mm. of, in, in representation in films and on television. You know, in everything. So even at the time, people knew that Black and White Minstrels was kind of wrong but it represented some kind of American archetype we didn't really understand so no it wouldn't have been an issue I was slightly put off originally uh, initially by the the two branged up white men doing the yeah. 
The Seekers, the band The Seekers, which I thought was quite a funny joke. <laughs> but actually, it feels like it feels like an early celebration of multiracial London, even it, though yeah, because you know it's showing the Chinese man gets into the Italian ice cream van to sell the ice cream. Abdul, the Arab guy who's selling carpets, he goes off down to Jewish Billingsgate and they do a deal and he swaps his carpet for some fish. And oh, and, and um, Michael Benteen's sign is, I forgot what it says now, but it's like a Jewish name and an Irish name. That's a, yeah, yeah. In a way, it feels like a slightly clunky way of saying, oh, we're all... It's, it's, baby, it's all. baby steps, isn't it? It's yeah. baby steps towards a multicultural yeah. society. You're right, it's clunky, but it's... It is baby steps, um, and comp- by comparison, there's. Do you remember that? So the opening shot, you know, the where everybody's coming out of their front doors, mm. and in comparison, there's another film around. It's a bit earlier, slightly earlier. It might be an old St. Trinian's film or something like that, and it shows people coming out of their front doors. But when it gets to the West Indian house, the door opens and hundreds of children come out. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a fear behind it, you know, like, oh, they're coming out, oh, they're going to overrun yeah. the city. You know, and Look that one makes door. you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this, like I say, I had that initial sight kind of, ooh, it's like clenching when I was you were browned up. But, and it's not, you know, obviously now you wouldn't have white no. people playing Asian no. people. But it does, and at the end, they're all together, and, and there's a fantastic shot, an aerial shot of his street, which is basically about six or seven terrace houses in a row, surrounded by what I assume is bomb sites. Yeah. And there they are, they're a community from all over the world in this one part of London, and I found it quite sort of heartwarming and, and But that's delightful. the tone of the film, isn't it? It's because yeah. it's all this, you know, that, that you can go across London and still find somebody to help you. I mean, they're all helping each other all the way through the film. There's lots, lots of people helping each other. The bits of it I genuinely enjoy now. I really like the music, upbeat, brassy, and I like the idea of the brotherhood thing bubbling along underneath. And I really like the last ten minutes when they're in that kind of amphibious car going down the Thames. That car was always in the news around that time. Um, it was a big deal, and suddenly they were trying to sell them for go to work up the river, and used to see them on the river, and they sat very, very alarmingly low in the water. Yeah, and didn't look very safe at all. So that was a real thing. That wasn't just oh like no, it was a real thing made for a made for the film. No, 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 it was a real thing, and they sat very high on their wheels. You know, it was on the road, and no, you would see them go into the ramps at, at Westminster and then go down the river, and it became a bit of a trendy status thing briefly. And then people realise, actually, the, you know, the rare sunny days in London, that'd be great, but <laughs> the rest of the time... You don't want to have a load of idiots driving sinkable cars no, no. down the river. So it kind of it did tap into the interest in them at that time. This is the fish out of water turned inside out. This is the land animal that has taken to life afloat. Two-way traffic on a wavy highway where there's no such thing as a speed cop or a hold-up at the lights. Then just the job for a Sunday cruise down the river. And the thing is, once you're waterborne, you really begin to believe that nine miles an hour is quite a speed. Because, look, that amphi car is travelling at nine miles an hour precisely. And you feel you're really moving. 
an awful lot of relatively low-budget horror and comedy, particularly with the, the horror anthologies. Uh, because they were done in sections, it was built around people's schedules way more than you would normally. And quite a lot of people got paid cash for two afternoons' work, and you'd say, get, say, Glynis Johns in, and he'd bung her a packet of money at the end of two days. I remember I did a thing, a short comedy film, and so many people were available at short notice. So we had Amy MacDonald and Larry Grayson were the director and his secretary or something, production assistant. And then we had most of the Pythons and the goodies and half a dozen other familiar faces. And then we all paid cash in hand on the afternoon and each one only did you know, a few hours. And they just stitched it all together afterwards. And I wonder if there wasn't an element of that in, in this. Cause it... The fact that none of the star characters meet any other... Any other star, or the star actors meet any other star actors. Michael Benteen's the only person who sort of stitches it all Joins together. together, yeah. Because I think the director probably is concentrating more on keeping each star happy in their own environment. I remember thinking at the time, oh, my God, they gave Norm Wisdom nothing to do. And then he must have turned up and gone, I think I'm going to do this one in an Irish accent. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, oh, all right, Norman, okay, do your Irish accent. Because priests are Irish, aren't they? <clears throat> uh, yes, priests are Irish. And it doesn't work. You know, it's just awful. It's the, the most disappointing section of the film. It, yeah. But yeah, I like that... the bit in the park. And, uh, Stanley Holloway's inside a bunch of... Uh, Stanley a Holloway. Herbaceous border, isn't he? The great Stanley Holloway. The great Stanley Holloway. Yeah, with his little, with his sort of stick-on teeth. Excuse me, how do you do? May I call your particular attention to the notice and its contents? Delphinia Gigantica. You know, it takes five years from the tiny seed that I've nurtured with loving care to the full paragoric effect you see here today. These beautiful blooms are extraordinarily delicate. So would you mind taking your dirty great hooter out of their fragrant petals? Thank you. There's a lot of films that I look look at now and I struggle to understand how they were made or funded. Mm. There's there's a sort of com- there's a comedy, I think it's in it's a colour comedy about uh, a traction steam engine rally with it's it's like with um Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna. It's like one of those one of those okay. films that they would have starred in together, and and it's completely boring subject. Yeah. You know, but they, they they did they got made because they were domestic and they were easy to shoot, and and you you, t- you, you take this thing that everybody recognised and understood, and then make a film about it, and sort of write a comedy over it or around it. And I wonder if with Benteen and Rupert Hart Davis, if they just went. Or wouldn't it be nice to make a nice sunny film about London where everything looks nice and we have lots of people doing funny little things? Yeah, because also... Thinking didn't go any further than well, when they When they came up with the idea, London was at its swinging height. And when it came out, it probably wasn't so much. Mm, um, yeah. If you're in the swinging London days, you probably think it's going to swing like this forever, you know. But it, sw- it, it swung for a very small group of people yeah. for a start. For a very short time, really. For a very short time. Yeah. And somehow, disproportionately... The effects of it, the knock-on effects. I think there was a huge backlash immediately after Swinging London because, um, so like my parents both lost all of their teenage years to the war because so they were 13 and 14 respectively, and it just excised their teenage years. And then they came out at the other end of the war, 
with more responsibility on their shoulders than anybody would normally have had at that age. And then they just immediately started their productive years of making money for the government. Mm. And that was pretty much that. Mm. And they weren't sort of bitter about it, but there was a big controversy about making fun of the previous generation. So the young, particularly when they started wearing military tunics with medals on, I remember there was a huge thing about the young not having earned the medals but are happy to wear wear them in swinging London, you know. So, I mean, the young didn't attach anything to them. They didn't... They just looked nice or bright and shiny, yeah. Yeah, bright and shiny, and they were being being flogged in every street market. Yeah. If you were were forced to recommend it to somebody, what would you you say in its favour? I'd say it's, uh, as I said in the book, I'd say it's a snapshot of a particular time in London that's not entirely inaccurate. Mm. It's It's got lots of odd, odd things that feel juxtapositionally right, like um, when the guy pulls up in the sports car and has an argument with Susie Kendall at the bus stop and there's a queue of people at the bus stop. There's the new London, new London money, and then the working class people waiting to go for the butt on the bar. You know, it's very, it's got those things that it's odd juxtapositions. You didn't see that very often in films. No. So it, it does have a weird element of realism in it, which is quite ridiculous to say. When and you do you remember the, the title sequence, the, the, the closing titles? Oh, this really odd thing about the boxing match. Yeah, yeah. or wrestling. Yeah, wrestling match. Yeah, well, what the hell is that about? What, uh, I mean, so, so just to explain, it's a kind of, the film finishes... And then we go to this title sequence where the list or the people are very proud of being in the film, Ron Moody, and they, they put them in order of star states, I think. So Normal Wisdom's up there quite early on and Ron Moody's up there early on. And they're rolling all these credits over this footage of two wrestlers in a kind of, you know, the old-fashioned kind of, I think they call it black country wrestling, pretend wrestling, cutting from that to this... 60s Dolly Bird, who kind of winks and wiggles a bum and... It looks like found footage. It doesn't actually yeah. look like the director put it on. I think what it is, is... Do you remember early on when Earl Cameron, who we forgot to mention, is kicking the two seats off the bus because mm. the instrument's too big? Yeah. He calls the driver down, a guy called Nosher, and Nosher comes out. Nosher was in real life in called Nosher, and he was a wrestler... And that's the bald guy in the wrestling scene is him. So they've kind of said, what are we going to do for the closing sequence? Oh, Nosha, could you do a wrestle? And we'll film it and then we'll do something. I love the randomness of that. I mean, it could have equally have been footage of pigeons, of racing pigeons across London. Yeah. Or the the floating car going down the river. That would have been great. I love those shots. I don't think films were constructed in the same way that everything dovetails now. And now we've got this extreme thing about fan fiction. Or fan service, rather. Fan service is when you give the audience exactly what it expects and hopes for, according to research done beforehand. So the last Star Wars film did it. Spider-Man, No Way Home, is pure fan service because it's largely based on a comic called The Sinister Six, which was done in the 60s, Hmm. where six of the villains all get together. And then it mixes in all of the other characters that everybody wants to see in one film and it ties them all up in a perfectly neat bow at the end. I think it's fair to say that The Sandwich Man was not a fan service film. I'm not sure who it pleased really, maybe London Geeks 50 years later? 
Many thanks to Christopher Fowler for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to meet you. The best place to find out about Chris and his many, many published works is over at his blog, ChristopherFowler.co.uk. I'll put a link to that on the show notes along with his Twitter and all that Stanley Green stuff, as well as details about our new Kino Quickies series. Please come and watch the films with me. That's all at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter on at BytesSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a nice review, which would be very much appreciated, at RateThisPodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dum Delagi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. That's all from me. And if I don't see you at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey, I'll see you in a few weeks. Bye for now. Bye.